Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. Well, there is so much talk lately about it being the golden age of television. I think it really is. And I would argue that our guest today, Juliana Margulies, was ahead of that curve. She was winning over TV audiences well before the small screen became almost more desirable, Brian, than the big screen. Yeah, back in the early 90s when Juliana was in her 20s, of course, she landed the role of nurse Carol Hathaway on the runaway hit show ER. A nurse with a complicated romance with George Clooney's character, I might add. Hubba hubba. I'm scared to death of losing you. Don't be. I'm so sorry, Doug. Don't be. I'm so jealous, but let me continue. Juliana is just as well-known and perhaps more well-known, at least in recent years, for her role on The Good Wife. She won critical acclaim and a boatload of awards for her seven seasons playing Alicia Florrick until she said, bye, Alicia. (laughs) And I know you and I are both huge fans of that show, Katie. We should note that The Good Wife came out on the heels of the 2008 prostitution scandal that forced Elliot Spitzer out of office as governor of New York. And now Juliana is set to star in another of-the-moment role on AMC's Dietland, which is a show seemingly designed for the Me Too era that we're in. Even though it was optioned before the Harvey Weinstein story broke, what can we say? Juliana has impeccable timing. And for the first time, I think, in her career, she is playing a massive bitch. So in today's (laughs) episode, we talk with Juliana about her iconic roles, her new show, Dietland, and her own experiences with sexual harassment in Hollywood. I feel like we have to talk about this historic moment we're in. I mean, it is quite remarkable to think about what the world was like even six months ago, Juliana, and how much it's changed with this reckoning about sexual harassment, misconduct, and the lack of opportunities, I think, and pay and equity, all kinds of things. And tell me about the changes you're seeing or how it's affecting your life as an actor. Um, It's pretty empowering. Um, First and foremost, what's important, I think, about all of this is not to pit women against men. This isn't about women against bad guys. This is about people who abuse power. And I think what's important to remember is that there's also women who abuse their power. And so I don't, for me, this whole movement, I feel like this has been bubbling under the surface for years, centuries probably. (laughs) Um, And it took a few really strong, brave voices to say, this isn't right and this is what happened to me in order for the conversation to start. And it's just the beginning I think we have a really long way to go, and I think we're now feeling that we're free to talk about it. 
And what was interesting to me is when it all started happening and you started hearing these stories, for my own self, I realized how many years I had just brushed things under the carpet and how many things I had sort of glossed over and almost almost selectively forgotten. And that was remarkable to me. I mean, someone once said to me a few years ago, you're such a pants girl. Why do you always wear pants? And I am. I like jeans. I always wear jeans. I would never think to throw on a skirt. And when all of this started, I remembered distinctly, oh, when I was 23 and running off to an audition on 42nd Street, I lived in Brooklyn and I was wearing a cute little mini skirt with some ballet flats, and I thought I looked really great for the audition. And I was running up the stairs at the F stop on 42nd Street, and there was a group of guys sitting on this ledge above the stairs, and I was taking the stairs two at a time so I wouldn't be late. And I don't know how he did it, but one of the guys jumped down and got underneath me so my legs were sort of spread across him, and he looked up my skirt, and all the guys laughed. And it was this horrific sort of just humiliating moment. So invasive, to say it the least. You know, so invasive. And I had forgotten about that. And I remember saying to myself when I jumped over him and ran as fast as I could, I will never wear a skirt like this again. I will never be put in this position because it was so mortifying and humiliating. That's Five funny. guys laughing at me. You know, as, as you were ta- telling that story, I just recalled being at a high school football game and walking, you know, toward a, the bleachers. Right. And I remember, you know, it was crowded, and some guy passed me, and he stuck his hand in my crotch right. and just kind of grabbed me. And I remember feeling so upset and discombobulated. But, of course, you know, I was probably 15 or 16 years old. I remember that day like it was yesterday. Right. And I think, yeah, of course, you just are— it, It's. It's, you're so ashamed and embarrassed and mortified. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. It's weird. But, you know, when, when you said you don't, you hope this doesn't pit women against men, Brian, I'm curious. Do you think it has, in a way, as, as a man here in this group? <laughs> uh, I don't think it should. But do you I think, think it has? Men, I think some men have perceived it that way yeah. as a kind of anti-men's movement and the— Complaint I hear the most from reasonable men I know is that there's no distinction between sort of everyday bad behavior and Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby at the other extreme. That basically there's a death penalty for anyone who's even accused of anyone in terms of their careers. And that and I think that's true. And I and I don't blame them for feeling that way. Um, I think it's important to talk about it mindfully and to understand that rape and sexual abuse and sexual assault is very different. Listen, I've grown up on set since I was 23 years old, right? I mean, me and Josh Charles used to joke and it was funny and they, yes, it was sexual and fun. I mean, I was doing it too because I felt safe with him and we're friends and, you know, we, we did stuff like that all the time. There's a difference between us doing that and someone coming up to you and threatening you. It's very, very different to say, hey, you look hot today. Or That's right, fine. Or you look really great in yeah. that dress. Or your uh, legs look beautiful in that skirt, which I think is creepy, but it's still not, you know, the extreme Brian just described. Right. And men shouldn't, you know, feel threatened if they tell a woman she's beautiful. That's lovely. I, I That puts you in a good mood, you know. But But what it should do is teach someone how to speak. And how to act towards women that isn't threatening and isn't abusive. But what do we do about this, what Brian brought up, this lack of sort of gradations of transgressions, if you will, to Uh use a lot of words with a lot of keys in them. But, you know, (laughs) saying that, you know, because it seems to me that I guess with any big movement, it feels the pendulum swings pretty far. Right. And it felt, has felt for the longest time that you couldn't say, well, wait a second, because you would be pilloried. Yeah. To say, hold on, you know, there's a little bit of a difference here. Yes, it's unacceptable, but it's not X, Y, or Z. But I, I think Matt Damon tried to do that he actually did, and quite he got, eloquently. He got and demonized. He got, <laughs> he got demonized. And I, 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 
didn't think that was right. I understood what he was saying. He was completely compassionate about what was going on with people who were raping, but it's not the same as what's going on with people who, you know, are joking around on a set. And we have to, we can't, you have to differentiate between what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I think we, we have, the, the dialogue has been opened, right, finally, after all these years. But I think what happened, and the reason the pendulum swung so far, was that women, it's been bubbling under the surface, and this tiny little opening happened, and it and we all just ran out of that one ripped seam. I, I described it as a dormant volcano that yeah, erupted. That's right. And with with sound and fury. That's and, much more eloquently well, than no, I no, could no, ever no, say. No, but you know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. sort of like this, as you said, there was this little fissure, and suddenly it was like Boom. Right. And that's what happened. You know, it's like, it's when you when you're suppressing because it's toxic. So all these things I started remembering. I mean, I talked about this Steven Seagal experience, which when I would tell it to my friends before the Me Too movement, it was a joke. And then when the Me Too movement happened, I realized I was just protecting myself because I was in a hotel room by myself. No one knew where I was with a six foot four black belt and whatever with a gun. He had a gun. Tell us a, a little bit about that situation for people who didn't who, hear it. Well, I mean, nothing happened to me, thank God. But he um, told you to meet him. Well, at his here's hotel the room? thing. So he didn't. No, the casting director did. And this who is was a woman. Who was a woman. Um, called me at my home. At 10 o'clock at night, I had, I had auditioned three times and been put on tape for Out for Justice. And I was, you know, a brand new, out of just out of college actress. And she called me and said, Steven Seagal thinks it'd be a great idea if you came to his hotel room to go over the scene for tomorrow. Because the next day was the last and final callback. And I said, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. I live in Brooklyn and I don't I can't afford a cab, and that's crazy. I'm not going to do that. That's silly. And she said, oh, don't be silly. Just get a car service. We'll reimburse you. I'm here. And when I heard her say, I'm here, I thought, oh, this is okay. I mean, the casting director, and she's a woman, so I'll go and do the scene. I wanted the job. I wanted to get my SAG card. I wanted, you also you know, probably didn't want to seem... Like a, difficult, yeah, difficult or prissy, right, or something, right. right? Well, and I was—I really wanted the job. I mean, I was a waitress. And you were twenty-three man. years old. <laughs> I was twenty-three. So I did. I called a car service, and I and I went to the Pierre Hotel, and I went up to the suite I was told to go to. And when the door opened, it was Seagal who opened the door, and um, there was no one there but him. And he, I said, "Where is she?" And he said, um, "Oh, she had to go home." Um, something about her kids, whatever it was. And it wasn't until that moment. And he pointed to the couch. He said, sit over there. And he pointed to this specific cushion on the couch. He wanted me to sit on this specific place. So I walked in and I sat down and I jumped right back up because there was something very uncomfortable and hard in the couch. And I couldn't understand if it was a spring or something. Yeah. And he laughed and he said, oh, sorry, that must have been my gun. And... Um, he lifted up the cushion and he took out his gun. And I had never seen a gun in my life, uh, not up close. How bizarre. And I said, uh, oh, my God. I started getting very sweaty. <laughs> and he said, oh, it's just for the crazy, all the crazies that are out there. I have to protect myself. But he had it in his hand. And then he said, it's been a really long day. I'd like to go over the scene in the bedroom. Um, at which point my brain just started... Uh, I started getting so angry at myself because I, I just, my inner dialogue was, you stupid idiot. How could you have done this? No one knows where you are. And you're in a hotel room alone with this guy and he's got a gun. How stupid. You're stupid. I was just chastising myself. And I, um, he called himself, a, I think a lot of women will probably uh, know this story because he's apparently done it to a lot of women, but he told me he was a healer. And he wanted to heal me. <laughs> um, and he looked at my palm and read my palm. He told me he could read palms, and he told me I had really weak kidneys. <laughs> um, at that point, to be honest, as a, a New York girl, I kind of started laughing inside, like, this guy's pathetic. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what, does he think I'm buying this line of crap? <laughs> yeah, that's hot. Um, and, I, and, and I said, thank you for telling me that. And I, I somehow, I really did... Uh, 
I just started talking a lot out of nerves and said, you know, I want to be fresh for tomorrow, and it's so nice meeting you, Mr. Scott. And I, I squirmed my way out of there. He did not. Um, here's where I don't understand my, my <laughs> where, I, where I got the balls to do this. I left, and I was sweating and panicking. My heart was pounding, and I realized I had no money to get home, and it was midnight, and he hadn't reimbursed me for that cab fare. I went back, and I knocked on the door. And I said, and he smirked, and I think he thought I was coming back. Like, oh, she, you know, she she got smart. Yeah. And I stayed on the other side of the door, and I held my hand out, and I said, um, I was told I'd get reimbursed for my cab fare. It was, it cost me $15 to get here, and I need cab fare to get home. And he just laughed and put, put money in my hand. I didn't look down. I ran to the elevator, went down, and it, it was a $100 bill, and I couldn't believe it. I thought, if I just survived Steven Seagal and a gun in a hotel room by myself, I can handle a subway back to Brooklyn. And I paid off my American Express card. (laughs) (laughs) What happened with the role? So so, obviously. So here's the thing, and it's so interesting because I've I've been writing about it now with this um, book that I'm doing. But um, I went in the next day. I went in and I got the part. And I got my SAG card. And when they, they flew me out to L.A., and my first day on the set, I said to the hair and makeup people, I'd never been on a set before. I had never been in a makeup and hair room. I mean, this was brand new. And I said to everyone in there, I know you don't know me, but I'd really appreciate it if no one would ever let me be in the room alone with him. I, I always need someone near me. Because I was I was scared. Um, and whenever, whenever someone, when they'd say, okay, we have a 10-minute break, and he would linger on set, I'd run out with everyone else. I just made sure to stay with the pack Um, And yes, I got my SAG card and I got a bigger agent from that job. And my career started, not because of that job, please. I played a hooker with a heart of gold, but um, truly not one of my best acting moments, I'm sure. But it got me to the next level I needed to get to. And it got me in the Screen Actors Union. And I have looked back at that and thought, what would my grandmother have thought of me doing that? My grandmother was a suffragette. My grandmother was one of the first women to ever graduate NYU Law School. She took the bar exam in from the New York Bar Association, but she wasn't allowed to join the club. So she started the Women's Bar Association of the Bronx. My grandmother was just one of those trailblazers. And I thought, I guess I had to do what I had to do. And I didn't get raped and I didn't get sexually assaulted and I did it. But if it was today, of course I wouldn't have but I'm also in a position where I can walk away from a job and not worry. And I couldn't then, and I didn't know any better. And I I think that those days are over. And that's what makes me happy about this movement is that every agent, casting director, manager, who producer, they know there is no need to ever be alone in a room with a director, a producer, or the star of a movie. There's no need, and it never should happen. And then you're never put in that position to begin with. But it kept happening. Yeah. I'm sorry. I I was going to say, Juliana, I I almost called you Alicia, actually. I confess. (laughs) You can call me Alicia. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. (laughs) You you mentioned agents, and there have been so many stories about agents and agencies being aware of this abuse and actually being complicit in it. Has there been enough of a reckoning there? Have you discussed this with your own agent and your own agency? Uh, I haven't discussed it with them. I'm with a different agent now than I was back then, and I'm with a woman. But I'll tell you this. My publicist, Carrie Ross, wrote a beautiful piece in Variety about how all of the people out there are complicit, including her, that she had clients that she knew. She knew what happened to me when I was asked to go to Harvey Weinstein's hotel room. I just, because of the Steven Seagal experience, I wouldn't go there alone, and I said that. Um, I was 28, and I was on ER, and I could walk away from the job. I already had a day job. I was already established in the business. And so when I was asked to go to Harvey's hotel room after a screen test that I did in London, um, the woman with me said, Harvey wants to meet you, and and I'm going to drop you off at the hotel at the peninsula. Same exact thing as what all these girls are talking about, women are talking about. And I said, that's fine, but I'm not going in there alone. And she said, don't be silly. And she started sweating, like, "Uh, what do you mean? (laughs) And I said, if he wants to meet me, he'll meet me with you or I don't go in. And she ended up coming with me. um, And he saw 
her behind me. And sure, he was in a bathrobe, and there was I saw in the background there was candles, there was a dinner. Um, he was in a bathrobe. It was 7 o'clock that at night. That was his big move, the bathrobe. <laughs> the bathrobe. So that was irresistible. What is wrong with but people? I know. But but I, I remember turning around over my shoulder and seeing him look at her, and she had her shoulder. She was in a shrug position. Like, I, I, what can I tell you? And he, you know, shut the door and said, great audition. Of course I didn't get the part. Fine with me. I'd rather not get it um, if that's what it costs. But I was in a position to do that, and I had known better because I'd already it had already happened to me with C- Steven Seagal, although I got out of that one unscathed. But I truly do think that when you're desperate for a job and, you, and you're excited and you want to act and here's someone offering you something, you don't th- think that that's going to happen. But now you will. And so hopefully now that conversation will protect the next generation of actors coming up. I am interested in sort of the mentality of these agents, publicists, et cetera. Was it just kind of the way things were done and it was an extension of the, you know, casting couch that existed in Hollywood for so many years? Truthfully, I don't think, I don't think that the agents knew that there was rape going on. I really, I mean, at least the people I've encountered, I think it was the way it is. Oh, dress up pretty. I mean, I remember when I was— um, Flirt if you have to. Yeah. When I was going uh, to meet Joel Silver to do Ghost Ship, I was told to get in a sexy outfit and go to his house on a Saturday by myself. Why? Very famous Hollywood producer, for those who don't know. Yeah, him. he's a very famous Hollywood producer. And I, and I remember, and I did it. Because my agents told me to do it, and, um, you know, this could be a huge thing. You're leading a Warner Brother movie. Why? Why do I need to dress up on a, 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 and go to his house by myself? So I what was happened? so uncomfortable. Did you go? I went, and I was so uncomfortable. And, I, you know, what was it for him to look me over? Also, if I may, Harvey Weinstein and Joel Silver kind of cut from the same cloth, and they— could be cousins. Um, who are you to sit there and look at me? What? What am I? Am I on a meat rack? I'm. But at the time when you have a whole industry behind you saying, "Oh, you got to go to his house, dress up nice," you just sort of did it. And nowadays that wouldn't happen. And I know that agents would never let that happen. Now, can we uh, hold everyone to account? I don't know. Um, should we? Probably. Um, can we? I don't. I. I don't know how that works. You know, because in a certain way, I look at my own actions. Um, Would you say you were complicit in some ways? Well, I don't. I don't feel complicit because I told everyone what happened with Harvey and with Steven Seagal. I told my agents. Uh, I don't. I'm not going to get that screen. Uh, you know. I know. I, I was down to the last two girls, but I ain't going to get that movie because I didn't go in his hotel room. And there's a laugh. So it wasn't like I was not telling them that that was going on. Um, but also nothing terrible happened to me. So I can't um, I can't speak to that because I wasn't sexually assaulted. I just was uncomfortable. Let me ask you a kind of incendiary question that I think some people have wondered do you think there are women who have used their sexuality and willingly engaged in that kind of relationship in order to advance their careers? You know, I can't speak on that because I don't know any, but I'm sure it exists. Um, and if you're comfortable with that and that's what you choose to do with your body and your career, then that's your choice. Um, but I, I don't know enough to speak on it. I don't know anyone who's done it. I can't imagine. I mean, my, you know, listen, when you were a waitress, a bartender, and a coat check girl and stuffing envelopes at a real estate office, um, a real estate broker's office, I, I had the luxury of always saying, I would rather clean toilets than sleep with Harvey Weinstein to get a job. Like, you know, and I, and I, I walked that walk because I would. But, um, but it's also because I, I I still was happy doing those jobs. I still had a good life, you know. And you had a strong sense of self. I had a strong sense of self. And I was brought up, you know, with a with a father who, you know, would say to me, if a man ever touches you in the wrong way, you knee him in the balls and run as fast as you can. You know, there was no sort of just stay in the room. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wasn't 
Not to say that any of these women had the choice, because I think um, these men are massive and um, overpowering and overwhelming, and um, I feel like they should all be put on an island with a few others, but I won't name names, but go on. The idea that women have to exercise self-defense in order to pursue a career is so outrageous. It's sickening, and it's barbaric. We're going to talk more about your current projects okay, and a little bit about ER and The Good Wife. (laughs) We're big fans, Julia. (laughs) Thank you. Big, big fans. Uh, But we'll do that right after this. Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of us. We're figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it it would have been been juicy. It would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to Juliana Margulies. Juliana, the one person who seems to have escaped accountability for his actions toward women is the President of the United States. At least 16 women have accused Donald Trump of inappropriate behavior from harassment to assault. So what message does that send to men and women everywhere? The wrong message. I mean, it's it's also grotesque. It's hard to even start. Where do you start? Um, I'll tell you this, when you're on a set, the mood and the feeling on the set is all created by number one on the call sheet. Whoever's that number one on the call sheet is how the set is run. So if that person is kind and generous and caring and wants to make sure everyone is doing okay, it's a happy set. When that person is a actor who's brooding or has a drinking problem or whatever it is and is miserable, it's a miserable set. And I think that that's what's happened to our government. The White House is a miserable set. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's obvious. And this isn't a right or left um, 
thing. This is fact. Um, it is toxic. It's a toxic environment. And what's making it the most, I mean, this is a man who rates people. When he was running for president, he said Heidi Klum wasn't a 10. Who, who rates people? I, I, it, it blows my mind. We're, we are in the gutter. Um, it's, it's crass. It's low. It's disgusting. And, um, you know, I always go back to O.J. Simpson. He was not found guilty. But where did he end up? In jail. That's where he spent the better part of the last 20 years. Why? Because in the end, you are who you are. And I do feel like the only sort of bright light at the end of the tunnel here is no one gets away with it. Uh, it, it just can't. It, it can't happen. And I think this verdict with Cosby that just happened a couple weeks ago, that's the tipping of the scales right there. And I think that women are finally being heard. And I'm hoping to God that uh, this just stops and he gets put away. He's, he's, um, he's crazy. And, and he's a misogynist and he's a racist. And uh, I can't believe he's in the White House. That's how I feel. Brian, did that answer your question? <laughs> that answered my question. You know, I w Katie and I were struck by one other thing you said, which is there are plenty of horrible women out there Yeah. in the context of all of this. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think men are getting this rap for being, for abusing power. But then look at, look at Betsy DeVos. Look at uh, Rebecca Mercer. Look at these women. They're, they all are in power and they're abusing it and using it wrong. So my, my point was just to say, to not be so quick to jump on women are great, men are awful. To say, no, there's, there's responsible, wonderful people. Um, and there's awful people who abuse power. So I just, I just was trying to make a point that it's not just men who abuse power, but it's women also. But a lot of people have said the way to solve this, or at least a partial solution, is to put more women in leadership positions to equal the playing field, to open more doors. Yeah, what just happened in Pennsylvania was spectacular. Yes. Look, I have a great line in my show in the, in the third episode— of Dietland, where my character says, men would rather destroy the world than let women rule it. And there is a tr tremendous truth to that, if you look at the last election. But the truth is, women are nurturing by nature. We're nurturers, and we can multitask, right? That's what we do. Um, whether you have kids or not, we are just better at it. It doesn't, I'm not pitting anyone against each other. It's just nature. Um, and I think that women were just much more empathetic to the human condition because we suffer a lot more. And when I say that, <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's so barbaric that 13 white men were in charge of women's health. Um, it, it's an affront to every woman on this planet um, that these men who have never had a period cramp or a hot flash or a pregnancy or any of the things that we women go through in our daily lives, that they are in charge of our bodies. This uh, Me Too movement, it should also be hand in hand with the, I'm labeling it here, the fed up movement. We are fed up. I don't want someone to tell me what I can or can't do with my body. I don't want anyone to take away my rights as a woman. I want equal pay. Uh, I, I'm not saying I'm better than. I'm saying I'm equal to. And that's all. That's what it should be. And in that way, Katie, to get around back to your question, that was a very long that's um, right. way around. But I was only saying that about women because— in terms of there's bad women out there, too, who abuse power, because there are. But there's great women out there. And there's women out there who have really, as I say, do it all backwards and in high heels, just like Ginger Rogers. And that makes them pretty dynamic um, and capable. Are you optimistic? I mean, if you had to wave a magic wand and come up with concrete solutions to make things better, not only for women in Hollywood, but just women in all industries. Have you thought about that, some of the, the, the concrete steps that could be taken? Yeah, so I have, 
And I know there are days that feel really defeatist. You know, it's hard to pick up. I used to read the New York Times every morning. You know, I don't now because it ruins my day. (laughs) But I heard Oprah talking, um, and she said, I choose not to give negativity any power because it's so toxic and it doesn't do any good. And I've really, since I heard her say that, I've been trying to live that way. And so, yes, I do feel hopeful Uh, As you said before, the pendulum swings, even Barack Obama said that, right? He said he was trying to calm us all down, and he said, listen, pendulum swing, it zigs and it zags. And I think we all need to be mindful of that, and we need to be careful not to just attack Trump or his supporters. I mean, as a New Yorker, truly, I I actually feel— I feel kind of bad for some of his supporters because we all know as New Yorkers, he's a con man. Like, we know that. it was He's a joke in this city. He always has been. Even when I was a waitress, I knew that. We'd all roll our eyes. Oh, here, here it comes. You know, he, but his supporters are buying it all. And um, they haven't grown up with him the way we have, you know? And I, and so I, I almost feel, I don't, I don't want to pit them against us. I want us all to be together in the same, it's not a kumbaya moment. I'm not, I'm not trying to be a crunchy granola. I'm trying to say, guys, we all live on the same planet and breathe the same air. So let's get on the same page. And it's good to have a right and a left. It's good to keep things right. We need to checks and balances, but dear God, this has gone on too long. I want to move on to a Please different topic because <laughs> we could talk about. Can we Donald talk Trump about hair or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. We'll talk about diets in a minute. But, okay. Um, you you mentioned your dad a couple of times, and and I read a little bit about your upbringing um, and about your parents. Can you tell us about them and growing up in three different countries, which I didn't know <laughs> about you? Oh, I said why I became an actress because I was always trying to be like that person in that country, you know. So it's easier just to put on someone trying else's to blend shoes. in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you want me to talk about that? Sorry, what? Was yeah, about your parents <laughs> and sort of about growing up in your childhood because I didn't know about this either. I know, and we've known each other so long. I know. Um, so I come from. So my father, Paul Margulies, was a copywriter in advertising, and he met my mother when she was in the original production of My Fair Lady. She was My mother was a ballerina with ABT and then went on to do Broadway, and they met on a blind date, and they sort of had a very quick shotgun wedding, um, and moved, they moved to Israel where my sister was born, um, and then they came back here and had my, my middle sister here in New York City, and then I was born in Spring Valley, New York, and shortly after I was born, they divorced. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. I'm just giving you sort of that. Thumbnail sketch. When they divorced, well, they separated when I was, before I was a year old. And um, my father went and took a job to open a new, to open an advertising agency for Wellsrich Green in Paris. And my mother said, hey, let's keep the kids and the family close enough. So, of course, she wanted to move to, who doesn't want to move to Paris? So we lived in Paris. My dad lived on the right bank and we lived on the left bank. So exotic. It sounds exotic, doesn't it? It I wish, does. You know, the the backdrop to it was my mother. My mother was a tremendous beauty, and she, you know, she came out of uh, this conformed way you're supposed to be as a woman and found herself. So there were a lot of boyfriends. There was a lot of Jean Jean, Jean Jacques, Jean Claude. They were. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's some great stories um, I have. Um, waking up in our apartment in Paris and all our furniture's gone because she went home with a Hare Krishna guy and um, they thought the furniture should be somewhere else. Um, but there, there, it was a crazy um, bohemian childhood. Wow. And did you always know you wanted to be an actress? <laughs> no, I, I actually truly thought I should be a lawyer. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like Alicia. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother was this this suffragette, and I grew up with that kind of identity. I thought, I'm going to be like her. I'm going to be a lawyer. Um, I wanted to do something. She used to use this word prestigious all the time. <laughs> Even when I was a code check girl, she was like, it's a prestigious venue. Like, everything had to be prestigious. <laughs> anyway, so That's funny. I thought, I'm going to be a lawyer like Grandma Henrietta. And um, I, I got to college and realized I hate reading contracts. I hate reading the fine print. There's nothing about it that interested me except justice. But you you went to Sarah Lawrence and you majored in art history. Well, art history and English. Um, but really at Sarah Lawrence, you had thirds. 
you got a Bachelor of Arts degree. So I had such a heavy academic schedule when I got there. I thought one of my thirds should be theater because I grew up. So one of the things both my parents agreed on was we never had a television in the house. So I grew up, we grew up writing plays. You know, our our after dinner entertainment was charades or putting on a play or doing or maybe reading <laughs> or re, or reading. Absolutely, reading. I mean, that was essential. But but we were always um, acting to, for to entertain ourselves. So I took an acting third at Sarah Lawrence, and my I got cast in a play my freshman year. And I just remember that feeling because I had traveled so much and never sort of had a permanent home. My first night on stage, I just remember thinking the lights went up, and I. I mean, I could, I tear up when I think about it, but I just felt like I was home. That feeling, that calling, yeah. So that's that's when I realized, you know what, I'm going to see if this works, but I can always fall back. And Earlier in your career, though, I know that you had trouble being cast in roles because you're so beautiful, but your looks are, are unconventional or were at the time, right? I mean, oh, they still are, but um, yes. <laughs> I, I, I don't think they are. But I mean, and, and I think that certainly there's such a, diversity of what we think of as beautiful now. I right. think it's it's widened so much. But, you know, I remember watching you as Carol Hathaway, and you were my favorite character on ER, but I also loved the fact that you were so cool looking. And no, <laughs> yeah, no, really. Yeah. And I loved sort of your dark eyebrows and your wavy, you know, curly, curly hair, hair at the time. Yeah. And you just didn't look like the typical ingenue on television. Right. How how difficult was that early in your career? In Not be- that difficult, obviously. No, no, it, but it was. I mean, it was, a, it was so odd to me because um, I was told by casting directors, you know, listen— you're never going to do television. Uh, you're just, what are you? And I actually got cast in two different McDonald's commercials as the girl who stood in between the African-American and the blonde because they didn't know if I was, I was asked all the time, are you part black? Are you Latino? Are you Greek? And I was like, I'm Jewish. I'm just a Jewish girl, I guess. I don't know. From but Brooklyn. I was, <laughs> I was told to go to Europe. They, I was told I'd have a better chance um, in Europe. Um, and then, you know, thank God uh, my character tested high because of the way the director on ER shot the pilot. Was that John Wells? That the director, no, he was the producer, He was right? the producer. The director was Rod Holcomb. And the way he shot Carol Hathaway coming in, with an overdose um, and pronounced dead through George Clooney's eyes. Apparently in test screenings, the audience went nuts because they cared for George so much, George's character, Doug Ross, that suddenly my character got elevated. And because of the way Rod shot that, Steven Spielberg apparently said, "Uh, we can't kill her off. And I got a permanent gig. I Isn't forgot that that's how you showed up on that show. I forgot that. Yeah, because I di- I actually was only hired as a guest star. They're like, you got this part, but you die in the pilot. And I said, that's fine. I'm not an L.A. girl. I'll go back to New York. <laughs> and then I got back to New York. And thank God, George, I mean, I owe him a lot because he left a message on my—I was about to take another job. He left a message on my machine. Remember when we used to have answer oh, machines? Oh, yeah. And he said, hey, uh, just heard through the grapevine your character tested well. I don't know if— it's a real thing or not, but don't take another job if you can. And I thought, wow. oh, my God. you know. And I then was, how long were you on that show? On ER? Six years. Six years. Yeah. Well, and the way you left that show raised a lot of eyebrows because, as I remember it, you were offered something like $27 million to Which stay. was a big chunk of change back in the day and still is. Isn't it still? <laughs> I, say, yeah. I don't have $27 I mean, yeah, million. But no, 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 of course. But I think, you know, you hear these crazy, crazy figures now. But, I mean, when you think about that was in, what, 19? That was 2000. 2000. That was 2000, yeah. And I, I read it was a question that your dad asked that motivated you to, to move on at that time. Yeah, he was instrumental in helping me. I I knew, listen, I had a year of work lined up. My contract was up. And I had told Robbie Bates, uh, John Robbie Bates, that he had given me this manuscript of a new play he had written with me in mind. And I was such a huge fan. I had done one of his plays, Substance of Fire, uh, regionally at the Oslo Theater in Florida. And... um, he said, I wrote this with you in mind. Would you want to do it? And I said, when? And he said, next year. I said, oh, my God, my contract is up then. And I had this play to go to. And I had this um, miniseries, The Mists of Avalon, that Uli Adele was directing. I mean, I, it wasn't like I was um, thinking I was going to be some big movie star. I was going off 
to do off-Broadway for $250 a week. But I was 32, and I had money in the bank, and I was just at that place in my life where I thought, isn't this what we've I've dreamed of? And everyone said I was crazy. I am in, everyone. Um, and I called my dad, and I said, I, I don't know what to do. I, I want to go home. I was also really homesick for New York. Um, and he said, when is enough enough? And if you got hit by a bus tomorrow and you were waiting for two years of your life to go by to get rich, what would your last thought be that you wasted that time on this earth living your life? And that changed a lot for me. And I thought, yeah, I don't want to regret. I want to move forward. So I didn't know there would be so much backlash <laughs> because I didn't realize that it was anyone's business. Um, <laughs> I'm just grateful there wasn't social media then the way it is now, <laughs> because I'm sure. But I got a lot of backlash for that. But you know what? It shaped who I've become. And it was one of the best things I could have ever spoken about. I did the 2010 commencement speech at Sarah Lawrence, and for the first time publicly, I spoke about it. And I spoke about it because my life turned out pretty great because of that decision. You know, I came back to New York. I had three years to just breathe and do all these things I had been wanting to do. And I met the love of my life, and I got married, and I had a baby, and then I got this show called The Good Wife. I mean, come on. I can't, you know, so I wanted to impress upon those students how important your own decision is for yourself, not for monetary reasons, and never to, never to do it for someone else's benefit, but to do it for yourself and stay true to who you are. That's a good message. I know you want to ask about The Good Wife, Brian. Go ahead. <laughs> I do. I'm a big Good Wife fan. And um, so am I, for the record. Aww, thanks. <laughs> Ask away. It lasted seven seasons. It was a huge critical and commercial success. Um, do you think there was a message in that show? I mean, it seems very appropriate to this particular moment because it was inspired by, you know, a powerful man behaving badly. In that case, yeah, the Elliot gift Spitzer. that keeps on giving. We called it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, is there anything you wanted those of us who are big fans of the show to to take away from the show or to learn from the show? Um. I loved playing Alicia Florrick. Uh, I, I miss her lines. I, I miss talking like her. Uh, and one of the things, I, I just think Robert and Michelle King did such a, a brilliant job portraying um, this woman. Um, I'll tell you what I got to take away from it rather than what I was hoping because it was better than what I could have hoped for, which is since I've been freed— <laughs> Because I really didn't have a life for seven years. You know, it was 10 months out of the year of just nonstop. And so these past couple of years, I've been able to take the subways and walk on the streets and drop off my dry clean, be a normal person and travel. And I cannot tell you how many young women, I, it just warms my heart, told me they are in law school because of Alicia Florrick and that they want to change the world. And that makes me so happy to know that if I, I know I couldn't read the fine print, so I couldn't change the world, but maybe I helped in my little actor way by inspiring the brains that can and these women that have gone to law school and that do want to change the world and help other people. So for me, I feel like what people walked away with was a complicated, accomplished, flawed woman it's okay to be a flawed woman. That's who we are. It makes us interesting. But that, first and foremost, she was trying to find justice in the world and yet always constantly questioning herself. And that's what we should always do, right? I think we should always be questioning our motives and our our true selves. And I feel like she did that. Let's take a trip down memory lane because we have a <laughs> clip of oh. Alicia uh, from season six of The Good Wife when she finds out, spoiler alert everyone, that her husband has cheated on her yet again. <sighs> Let's listen. I'm not sleeping with her now. I was pregnant with Grace. Were you sleeping with her then? Alicia, listen to me. I will do nothing to embarrass you. These weren't taken by me. You think I give a crap enough to follow you? They were taken by another campaign. They're going to use this against me and you. And I won't stand beside you. Not again, Peter. Not in a million years. So don't listen to me. Keep lying to me. I don't care. But do listen to your political instincts. You want to be reelected. 
You want me to be elected? Then zip up your pants, shut your mouth, and stop banging the help. <laughs> That's right. Right on, sister. <laughs> my um, my stand-in for all those years, Elle, her name is Elle. She's awesome. She, for Christmas that year, had that engra- had that embroidered on a blanket. Zip up your pants, shut, shut your mouth, and stop banging the help. And uh, I use it to cuddle myself with sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So funny. Well, you know, now you have a new show after f- saying bye, Alicia. Yeah. <laughs> you have a new show called Dietland on AMC, right. which is so interesting and so original. And I'm curious, you must have had a million offers, Juliana. What was it about this show that made you think, okay, I'm diving into this one. Um, There were many factors. So I needed to take a year off because I was mentally and physically just exhausted, and I wanted to be there for my family for a change. And by the way, listeners, Juliana (laughs) has the cutest family. Her husband (laughs) is so cute and wonderful, Keith Lieberthal. So, uh, I mean, honestly, he's great. And and she has a 10-year-old son named Kieran. Yeah. I yeah. just wanted and to. Kay- no, and, and Katie's, Katie and, and Keith and I and John, we've, we all have dinner together, so she's speaking truth. Um, <laughs> she, she knows my smarty husband who could read the fine print, thank God, and could be a lawyer. Um, yeah, so wait, what was the question? Dietland, why did I do it? Yeah. So uh, I took about a year off, and this fell in my lap. And um, first of all, I'm from network television. We do 22 episodes a year. I was lucky if I got it an episode 24 hours ahead of shooting it. Sometimes there were days that I would get an episode while being in court and the new episode was starting the next day and and I would get it 12 hours before shooting it and <laughs> while I was still working. So Marty Noxon sent me five written episodes of this show, which was for me just surreal. <laughs> I was right. like, wait, what, is this TV? Or what? <laughs> And there was only 10, going to be 10 episodes, and I had vowed I would never do 22 again because it. you just, I know women say, oh, we can do it all. We can't. That's just not true. Although you were kind of proud of the fact that you did as many episodes. I remember at the Emmys, you, yeah. were, you were kind of— Well, I was uh, proud of the fact that I was still standing. Right. But right. I don't know if that's a good way to live your life. No, but I think at the <laughs> time, you sort of in some ways was, wore it as a badge of honor a little bit, don't Well, you I was proud of the writers— But truly, this belongs to Robert and Michelle King. All our writers who never cease to amaze me with 22 episodes a year. That particular Emmys, that year, um, none of our writers got nominated. And it was all cable. I was like, what? Six episodes is a miniseries. Let's get real. This is not... But these guys were in the writer's room. They only had a three-week hiatus all year long, three weeks in June. That was it. They were under the gun all the time. And so I, I said that to them. I was so blown away that they could keep coming up with this material 22 episodes a year. So I was trying to make a point for their sake, not so much my sake, but yes, um, the landscape has just shifted so much with streaming and and with cable. But that's okay because now I'm benefiting from it. Um, and I vowed that I would only do um, a series that was 10 to 13 episodes long. So this, this show showed up and I looked at the character and I've never been offered the, you know. Shrew. The shrew. <laughs> the, well, she was also a bit of comic relief. And just delicious lines. I mean, honestly, Kitty Montgomery, who I play on Dietland, is this um, um, magazine editor, and she she gets the best lines and the best clothes in the in the show. I have to say, it's a luxury. And of I'm sorry to interrupt. We have a great clip. Oh, of you Kitty do, Montgomery. Okay. Yeah, let's listen. I never talk about this around here, but menopause, Perry. In my case, you know me. Always have to be first. <laughs> Suddenly, I had this middle. My chef had to cut absolutely everything white out of my menu. You can do things for the face, the body, even the hands. But the waist, you have to attack. <laughs> Around here, you start looking like somebody's grandmother, you're out. Martha Stewart can get away with it. She sells hot glue guns. But tastemakers, no. Mark my word. It won't happen to me. <laughs> 
I will not be left behind. <laughs> Kitty is a high-powered, narcissistic, yet insecure editor of a magazine for teen girls. So you're in good hands, ladies. Um, so, I mean, she must be delicious to play, but God, she's so awful. She's so awful in the best way. I, she is delicious to play. That's the word that's interesting because that's the word I've been using uh, a lot talking about her. Um she is so narcissistic, and she has no moral center. She just wants to win, um, whatever it takes. And she she has no idea how awful she is. She actually genuinely thinks that she's really empathetic and sympathetic to other people's causes. And she just she steamrolls over everyone and leaves this horrible debris in her wake without any uh, awareness of it. But at the center of the series is a woman who I think so many women watching, no matter what their size, can relate to, full of self-loathing, really uh, at her wit's end when it comes to dieting. Um, and and it's funny. I was watching it with a colleague of mine, and I said, it doesn't really matter who you are. Women can relate to this character. And yeah. she is, I think you said— a revelation. She is. Joy Nash is a revelation. And I keep telling her, I'm a, I keep telling her she's going to be a role model for so many people. So she is the woman who's providing the copy for your character so she in writes, the advice column. Right. So I'm the editor of this teen uh, young woman's magazine, and it's uh, I've taken it from zero to 100. It's now the number one magazine in the country. And I hire uh, I hire Plum Kettle, who is a fat girl, and and if Joy was here, she would say, "Say the word fat." Um, she has taught me a lot. Uh, she's she's obese, and I hire her. She's brilliant, and she's a writer. And she, I hire her to answer the letters because, in Kitty's mind, how would Kitty be able to answer these letters? Because Kitty's perfect. But Plum is not perfect. She's incredibly imperfect in Kitty's eyes. And so I hire her. And in her own eyes. And in her own eyes. But what, what I love about the, the character of, uh, that Joy Nash plays of Plum Kettle, she, in the pilot she says, um, I'm going to be happy when I'm a size six. And she's saving up to do uh, the bypass surgery so that she can finally be, start her life. I will start my life when I can fit into this dress. And she actually starts ordering dresses online that are a size six, and she takes them out of the box, and she hangs them in her closet. Um, now, she is playing a 300-pound woman, and it's a beautiful message, which is she ends up meeting people who say, wait, why, don't, why are you waiting to start your life? Why don't you start your life now? She, she meets all these people, and it's, it's very complicated, and, and, and there's a big backdrop of a vigilante movement going on. And, but but what, what fascinates me about the character of Plum is that it doesn't matter whether you're size 2 or a size 20. I think all of us do it. I think we all say, oh, if I just – once I meet the right guy, then I'll be happy. Once I um, – Get Once my I start, nose fixed or yeah, my or, breasts enlarged. Or if enlarged, I just had my eyes my... done or if I just, yeah, all of that stuff. Once I do, if I do yoga every single day, then I'll be happy. If I get the right job, then I'll be happy. Instead of being present in the moment and saying, wait a minute, I, I should be present in my life now. That is what's going to change who I need to be for the better. Not when I get there, then I'll be better. Um, and it's being present instead of constantly wishing your life away to get to the place you think you're supposed to get to. And then then what? Then it'll just be the next thing. It's very original. It has animation in it. Yeah. It does have this crazy, violent backdrop. Yeah, it's big. You know? Um, that and, was the fed up moment. And yeah. I think it's really, I think, very original. It's original. I would describe it. And But are you worried in the current landscape with so many things to watch? <laughs> you know, uh, do you worry, gosh, will this get attention? Will it break through? I don't. I mean, here's here's the thing. It, it's, it's not my ship. I'm just along for the ride. Um, it's not that I don't want it to succeed, um, whether I was the lead of it or not. Um, I feel like this show, we all had such a great experience making it, and the dialogue, just talking about it, has been so inspirational to me as a as an actor and as a woman and um, as someone who now views the world differently just from being able to have been on a set with these words and with Joy Nash and Marty Noxon. 
Um, I see things a little differently now. I, I, I'm not as judgmental. So I got what I need from it personally, just from the experience of doing it. I hope for Marty and Joy's sake that it's a huge smash because I want everyone to see it because I think it hits on really heavy subject matter, but it's satire and it's funny and sad and breathtaking and um, Marty said one of her friends saw it, and he he said, this is like Devil Wears Prada meets Fight Club. You know, it's sort of this mix of, the, it's the backdrop of a vigilante movement that have just had enough of men accused of rape and horrific sexual abuse. Nothing has happened to them. They have not been convicted. And women saying, I've had enough. And they start killing them. They start flying, falling out of the sky, sometimes in the middle of Madison Avenue, sometimes off a freeway. It doesn't matter. I don't condone violence at all, um, but there's a group of women who have had enough. But it also teaches you to walk in someone else's shoes. And I think in today's climate, where we're at with everything, I think we all need to walk in someone else's shoes for a minute. We need to walk in the shoes of refugees. We need to walk in the shoes of people of color. We need to walk in the shoes of women. And I think this show touches on a lot of things that, people will relate to in terms of humanity. I just love talking to you. Obviously, I'm so happy that our listeners got to spend some time with you today because I think you're so thoughtful, so independent, and such a good person. Not to oh, be all cheesy you. and weird. No, thank you. <laughs> I love I, you, man. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, the thank four you. of us are having dinner this yeah, week. Right, so Thursday. Um, so this is not— oh, this I, is guess, not, I guess uh, my invitation was lost in the mail. <laughs> yeah. Brian, you Brian, can come on. If you were in New oh, York, okay. Brian, of course you'd be invited. You're always right. welcome right. at our table. But, uh-huh. but I, I wish you all the best with this new show and just with your life in general because thank I can't you. think of anyone more deserving. And uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Thanks it's for nice having to me, have this, this kind of venue because, oh, you know, you don't have to give 13-second sound bites yeah. and you can actually have a really nice in-depth conversation. So thank you. I listen to all your podcasts. This is how I get around New York City. I walk everywhere because I have time now and I put on a podcast. There you go. That's well, awesome. make sure that ours <laughs> is at the top of your list. And I'm going to send you links for my Nat Geo show too. Awesome. So I'm going to keep you very busy. Okay, good. I have time now, Katie. <laughs> okay, I can. Okay, good. Katie, so often when you meet a TV star or a public figure, you're disappointed in real life that they're not as good as they were watching them on TV. And I think Juliana is the opposite of that. She is so sharp, so funny, and a really nice person on top of it all. So this was one case where real life was even better than the small screen. Well, I think she felt the same about you, Brian. I think she really enjoyed talking to you. Maybe it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. (laughs) And meeting you. But you're right. I've always found her to be very, very thoughtful interesting, have a tremendous amount of depth, and clearly ridiculously talented. I don't like her as much as I thought. <laughs> I'm a little <laughs> jealous now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm feeling a little jealous. Anyway, she's a, she's a wonderful person, so I'm glad you enjoyed the conversation. We want to say thank you to our team at Stitcher. That's our producer, Gianna Palmer, assistant producer, Nora Ritchie, and Jared O'Connell, who mixes and engineers the show and does it beautifully. Thank you, Jared. Also, to my team at Katie Couric Media, KCM, Baby, Allison Bresnick, Beth DeMoz, and Emily Bina. Special thanks as well to Ryan Connor for engineering today in L.A. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. Katie and I are the executive producers of this show, for better or worse. <laughs> and if you want to keep up with us between episodes, I tweet from at GoldsmithB. And Katie is on social media speaking to her millions of fans no, under I, Katie Couric. <laughs> pretty much uh, addicted to Instagram. So if you want to know anything about my life, uh, who I'm with, what I'm thinking, what I'm eating, what I'm wearing, just check out my Instagram account. Anyway, if you enjoy our show, please make sure you subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they come out. Thanks to everyone who has left us reviews on Apple Podcasts. We love hearing from you, and it really helps other people find our show. Please be aware that we are off next week and have some very special surprises coming when we return. In the meantime, have a great Memorial Day, everyone, and thank you so much for listening. Hi, 
I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, everyone. It's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.